Amen. Please be seated. It's kind of hard to sing that song sitting down, but we need to wait for the offering to be taken before we can sing it. <laughs> All right. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11? We're going to look at verses 14 to 28 this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. And as I read this text for you this morning, one of the things you're going to probably be wondering in your heart is, one, what's he going to say about this? But two, I hope you'll notice that this reads like you're actually an eyewitness at the event. And Luke is telling you exactly what happened as Jesus is now making his way toward Jerusalem and he is encountering these various people along the way. So let me read this passage for us as we begin. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. And now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Let's pray. Father, there are many things going on in this story that we read about Jesus today. And I pray that you would help us to get the point of what you are saying to us here through your word. And help us to be those people that Jesus said are most blessed of all, those who hear your word and obey it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there is little doubt that Jesus' life and teaching has had a greater impact on our world than any other person in history. This year in our ABFs, our Adult Bible Fellowships, we're going to be starting with a series uh, written by John Ortberg, it's a video series based on his book, Who Is This Man? And I think you're really going to enjoy it. What John Ortberg does is he shows the impact that Jesus' life has had upon our world and many things that people just don't even understand or haven't made the associations, the connection. But it was Jesus' 
teaching that raised the status of women and children in our world. And it led to the formation of schools and hospitals and orphanages. It was Jesus' teaching that influenced law and government in the formation of new nations. Even our own country and the freedoms we enjoy as Americans. The belief that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights comes from the scripture. It doesn't come from Greece. It doesn't come from Rome or ancient history. They did not believe that. They believed that men were not created equal. And you had a very strong caste system of those who were privileged and those who were slaves and were not. You think about our historical calendar. Our calendar, the year 2017, is dated from the time when Jesus was born. And if you think about his influence on art and music and literature, more books have been written about Jesus and more songs have been written about him than any other person in history. And today, more than two billion people in our world would claim to be a follower of Jesus. Why is that? What was it that was so extraordinary about this man's life? Well, we who have come to know him as Savior and Lord and have seen his work in our life understand that, that there is no one like Jesus. He is Lord and God. And when we come to a passage like this, it's an interesting story because here Luke tells us about another miracle that Jesus performed an outstanding miracle. A man who was mute, who was unable to speak, is now healed. The demon is cast out, and for the first time, this man begins to speak. And no doubt, he is offering praise to God for what has just happened. But the focus in this story is not on the miracle. It is on the response of the people. And the issue is, what is the source of Jesus' power and authority? No one could argue the fact that a miracle had taken place. This man's life had been changed. He was healed. The crowd was amazed by that. But then some began to say, it's by Beelzebub that he does this. Beelzebub being another name for Satan. It means Lord of the Flies. And here they are crediting this power, this miracle that they have just seen to Satan. Some asked for a sign from heaven, and you you look at that and you go, what? I mean, he just healed this man. This is a messianic miracle. This is like raising the dead. This is like healing a person who was blind and giving them sight again. And they're asking for a sign? And some, in time, would come to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is Lord and God, the Savior of the world. But how did Jesus answer them on this occasion? That's what we're going to look at. And what we see in Luke's gospel is that Jesus' miracles were a sign that the kingdom of God has come into our world. It broke into our world in power through Jesus. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 17, said to them that any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. He gave them a very common sense answer here. 
I mean, just think about that. If a, if a kingdom is fighting against itself and back and forth and warring against one another, it's not going to stand. A kingdom needs to be united if it's going to stand. So what do you think? You think that I am doing this by the power of Satan and I'm fighting against Satan? He said, if I am delivering people from the bondage of Satan by Satan, then by whom do your followers drive them out? There were Jewish exorcists. There were those who would heal people. By what power did they do them? Let them answer your question. But if I drive them out by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. If I drive them out by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come to you. That phrase, the finger of God, is a very specific reference that goes back to the Exodus. It goes back to the time when Moses was sent to Pharaoh to command Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they could worship him in the wilderness. And God had given to Moses and Aaron this power to do these great signs and miracles. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh. God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And what does Moses do? He takes his staff and he casts it down on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And then the Egyptian magicians, wise men, do the same thing. They cast their staffs down. They become snakes. But Moses' snake swallows them up. And when he picks it up, it becomes a staff in his hand again. Pharaoh hardens his heart, will not let God's people go. So another miracle is called for. And Moses turns the water of the Nile to blood. But the Egyptian wise men and magicians do the same thing, turning water into blood. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart again. But the miracles, the plagues that come upon Egypt continue, the plague of the gnats, the plague of the frogs, and so on and so on, until the wise men of Egypt, who are powerless to stop this, the magicians will say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They recognize that these miracles were not done by any trickery, any human power. They were by the power of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. Well, what happened then is what is happening now in Jesus' ministry. They saw the miracle that he performed. And it wasn't just this one. I mean, he's been doing many different miracles throughout his ministry, but they refused to believe. And it still happens today. There are people who could look at all of this evidence for the uniqueness of Jesus and his impact upon history, and they simply choose not to believe. In the book, The Magician's Nephew, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series that C.S. Lewis wrote. He gives a picture of what that is like and how dangerous it is for a person to close their eyes and their ears and their heart to the leading of the Holy Spirit. In that book, Narnia is created when Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, sings it into being. And the creation song reveals Aslan's majesty and glory. It is this grand call to worship. It pictures our Lord at the beginning of creation singing all that we see into being. 
But Uncle Andrew is in that story, and he refuses to hear it, and the consequences are staggering. When the great moment came and the lion spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing long ago when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. And then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he would say to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing. It was only roaring as any other lion might in a zoo in our world. Of course, he can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you, are very, often, you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. And soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, banes, and howlings. It is a dangerous thing to close your heart to the Spirit of God. God is at work in our world, and there are times when people will, will feel this nudge of the Holy Spirit, or they'll feel this prompting, and they'll, they'll hear the Scripture, or they'll hear the Gospel, and they'll go, what if it's true? Maybe Jesus is Lord and God. And they'll think in their heart, but that means I'd have to change. And I don't want to change. I, I don't want there to be a God. I want to be my own God. I want, to, I want to be in control of my own life. And so they begin to shut it out, and they refuse to hear the message, and they close their heart to it. And the more we close our hearts to it, the harder it will ever become to hear the Word of God. And they begin to think that Jesus is just a man. Of course he's a man. I mean, miracles can't happen, right? I mean, we just kind of rule that out as a, a priori assumption that miracles, supernatural, can't happen. It's all got to have a natural explanation. And so they say that Jesus is just a man like any other man. But he is not an ordinary man. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus' power shows that he has come to destroy Satan. And we see that in verses 21 and 22. He tells us that when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. In this example, Satan is the strong man who wants to keep the whole world in darkness under his power. But Jesus is stronger, and he has come to set the captives free. And we see that throughout the New Testament. Jesus will say in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came into this world on this rescue mission to bring us from Satan's kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. And Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus came to destroy Satan and set the captives free. But here's the difficult part of that, if you will. The people can be either for Jesus or against him, but there are consequences to our decision. People can choose to be a follower of Christ or to reject him, but there are serious consequences for those decisions. You look at verses 23 to 26. In verse 23, he said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. The point of what he is saying is that you cannot remain neutral. You can't just sit on a fence. Not to decide is to decide. Either you are for Jesus and you have committed your life to him, and you are going to follow him, or you are against him. And the consequence of that decision will mean eternal separation from God. You look at verses 24 to 26, and he tells this story about a man who had an evil spirit cast out of him. And when that evil spirit came out, he goes through the wilderness seeking a place, a body, in which to dwell once again. Evil spirits, demons, do not want to be uh, in a spirit form only. They want to inhabit someone. And so he gives this picture that was probably a picture of what was happening when the Jewish exorcist would cast a demon out of someone by the grace of God. And there would be a change, but if there was no spiritual birth, what would happen? Well, when that spirit arrives and it finds the house swept clean and put in order, then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. The point of what he is saying is that moral transformation without regeneration is fatal. I mean, there are individuals in our world who have had Dramatic changes in their life, and I would say by the grace of God. You know, and maybe, maybe they grew up in poverty, and through hard work and, and determination, they made something of their life, and they became successful in the eyes of the world, and they, they've uh, gone on to do some great things. But if there has been no spiritual birth, no work of the Spirit in their heart, no presence of the living God taking up residence in them. It doesn't profit a thing. 
And people can go through uh, rehab. They can go through chemical addiction programs and, and be a recovering alcoholic or be a recovering drug addict. And there is significant change in their life. But if you do not know Jesus, it will not save you. And it will not last beyond this life. Without the new birth, without the Spirit of the living God taking up residence in our heart, without trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, all of these things are ultimately a dead end. And the last condition of that person will be worse than the first. Years ago, Tim Keller wrote this. He said, I read an ad in the New York Times that said that the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we have the light within us and so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. And Tim Keller asked, can we? Can we really do that? Have we been very successful in doing that so far? Or do we continue to see wars and suffering and cruelty and injustice in our world? He said one of the most thoughtful world leaders of the late 20th century was Vaclav Havel, the first president of the Czech Republic. And he had a unique vantage point from which to peer deeply into both socialism and capitalism. And he was not optimistic that either would, by itself, solve the greatest human problems. He knew that science, unguided by moral principles, had given us the Holocaust. And he concluded that neither technology, nor the state, nor the market alone could save us from nuclear degradation. Pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. Havel said what we need is a turning to, and a scene of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets that he is not God. We are not God. We need God. And we cannot change the world or the human heart by our own power. Only Jesus can do that. The final point that Luke makes here is that the kingdom of God belongs to those who hear and obey him. And Jesus was saying these things. A woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. It seems when you first read it, kind of like this random comment that was thrown out from the crowd. I mean, it's very much like we are there and we're hearing people shout these things, but why was this statement picked up on? And why did Jesus respond to this one and not to maybe other statements that were made that day. He uses it as an opportunity to teach us something very significant. He is not denying the blessedness of Mary and her role as the mother of Jesus. But he makes this point that blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. What he is saying is that it is even more blessed to be an obedient follower. It is those who hear the word of God, his word, 
and who put it into practice, who will be blessed in the end. The kingdom of God belongs to those who do. We are to hear and follow his word. And we are to do it as though our life depended upon it because it does. Several years ago, there was a story in the news about a man who is an 81-year-old man with no flying experience who ended up in a very tragic situation forced to fly an airplane. On June 17, 1998, he and his 52-year-old pilot friend, Wesley Sickle, were flying from Indianapolis to Muncie, Indiana. And during the flight, the pilot slumped over and died at the controls. And the Cessna 172 single-engine plane began to nosedive, and Cooper Schmidt grabbed the controls. He got on the radio, and he pleaded for help. Well, nearby were two pilots who heard the call. Mount Comfort was the closest airport, and the two pilots gave Cooper Schmidt a steady stream of instructions of climbing, steering, and ultimately how to land. The two experienced pilots circled the runway three times before this somewhat frantic and totally inexperienced pilot was ready to attempt the landing. Emergency vehicles were called out ready for what seemed like approaching disaster. Witnesses said the plane's nose hit hard. It nudged that center line and bounced a few times before the tail hit the ground. Well, the Cessna ended up in a patch of soggy grass next to the runway, and amazingly, Cooper Schmidt was not injured. This pilot listened and followed those directions as though his life depended upon it, and it did. Imagine what would happen if in the lives of believers we listened to and obeyed the word of God with the same earnestness. This word is life. This is the path to joy. This is the path to peace with God and to fruitfulness in our life today. Listen to it. The kingdom of God has come into our world in the person of Jesus but it is not yet here in all its fullness. We are waiting for the day when Christ will return and establish his kingdom on earth. But every day, we have the opportunity to join with him in his work, to share the good news of the gospel, to go and make disciples, to work for justice in our world, to show God's love and compassion. Every day we can make an impact that will last for eternity. And we do that by hearing and obeying the Word of God. Well, let's make this a great year at Lakes Free as we work together to lift up and glorify Jesus. And let's make that our prayer that He would use us to be a blessing in this community and to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the privilege it is to know You and to serve you. And I pray that all of us, that we would grow in our obedience to you, that we would put aside those things that trip us up and that hold us back, and that we would follow you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know that many of us are thinking about uh, 
friends we may know in Florida with the hurricane that's approaching there, uh, there is a way that we can help. And through the Evangelical Free Church, there's a fund that's been set up. We're going to be taking a special offering for that fund next Sunday after our uh, services where you could contribute to that. What I want to show you today is a video that was put together that shows the follow-up to Hurricane Harvey that's going on in Texas. This was obviously done. Knowing that Florida is going to be hit next, and I'm sure there'll be more help that will be given there as well. But take a look at this video on the screen, and then we'll close our service. You're welcome. We had never seen so much water. I think it's something like 60 inches in four days. Uh, it's painful. This is my city. I grew up here. Like we have, I think close to like 400,000 homes destroyed. And I would estimate 20, 25 percent of the families in our church uh, have been directly affected. This is the worst thing any of us have ever seen. Even those of us who've lived here for 40 years. What happens when that when that water comes in is basically everything has to be replaced. If you drive down the streets in our neighborhood, um, it literally looks like um, what I would imagine a war zone to look like, and it just looks like um, people's entire lives being thrown out on their front curb right now. People have lost homes, people have lost uh, their vehicles, people have uh, lost their life savings in response to having to take care of the losses that they have. People in this community don't have flood insurance because we're not in a 500-year floodplain. Well, this is a thousand-year flood, they're saying. When the water falls, the church has to rise. That's your friend? Come on. To be able to touch people's lives in a time of crisis, I hate that this has happened, but this is an incredible opportunity too. And I feel a burden for the church to continue to be beautiful. It, it is pretty awesome how we think of the body of Christ as his hands and feet. And uh, that's never more obvious than when you're sending a group of people and uh, you're sending them in to people they've never met and they're gonna serve those people and help them with practical needs, showing God's love in practical ways. And, uh, and being the body of Christ. And I think over the next several weeks and months, as more and more people come from more and more places, we're gonna see how the body of Christ pulls together. I don't know how we would have done this without a church. When you're in the middle of physical exhaustion of moving things and then um, the mental exhaustion of deciding what to keep and what to throw away and the grieving of what you've lost, and then to have people come in and say, you know, we love you and we're here to help you. Um, it's been tremendous. So. I think someone thinking about um, helping would be an incredible blessing. I mean... <laughs> yeah. 
As crisis response, we're able to come alongside these churches in the, the Houston area and the Texas Gulf Coast. They've never gone through anything this extensive and massive, and we bring expertise that we can help to share with them through the recovery stage of putting, you know, gutting a church, putting a church back together, and helping to provide uh, the resources and manpower, tools, supplies, those kinds of things that are necessary in order to put a home or a church or really people's lives back together. Houston is the fourth largest metro in America. Uh, the needs are great. We need help raising a million dollars to get going right from the beginning. We need help with teams coming in. We don't just want you to come, we need you to come. Help us offer the relief and help that's needed here. So one of my hopes uh, through this time is that all of you guys who are in EFCA churches uh, throughout the rest of the world, um, but particularly throughout the rest of the United States, um, would be able to help support us. We are in um, crisis mode, we are in recovery mode, and there is so much help that we still need um, financially, manpower-wise, uh, organizationally, and otherwise. Um, we really do believe that we are better together, and I'm thankful for all the work that we're gonna do together over the next year. As I said, we want to do our part. We'll be taking an offering next Sunday that I'm sure will go to both toward help in Texas as well as in Florida, too, where we have uh, many free churches down in that area as well. Would you please stand for our benediction as we close? And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.